0: Klyam Weizman, overwhelmingly elected first president of Israel, comes to Jerusalem for his inauguration. For the 74-year-old statesman, this is the climax of a life devoted first, as a scientist, to all humanity, and second, as a Zionist, to the creation of a free and independent Israel. Before the Israel Constituent Assembly, he takes the oath of office, for with the Presidency of Israel more an honorary post than an executive one, he expects to spend most of his time in scientific research for the benefit of all mankind. At the end of September of 1948, my birthday buddy Chaim Weizmann was due to fly home from Geneva to attend his official inauguration as President of the State of Israel. But Switzerland wouldn't allow a military aircraft to land in the country, because it was neutral, so the Israeli Air Force had to convert one of its planes into a civilian one. They stripped it of its military designation and dressed it up in the blue and white colors of Israel. Then someone decided that it wouldn't be right for the first president of Israel to travel on an anonymous plane, so they gave it a name, Rehovot, the name of the town outside Tel Aviv where Weizmann lived. And then they added a Hebrew phrase from the Book of Hosea, That roughly means upwards, or more directly, to the skies. El Al. That became the first plane and the first flight of what is today Israel's national airline, El Al, and the only airline, by the way, that puts anti-missile defense systems on its aircraft. So that, and a bag of peanuts, will get you all the way to Israel. New direct routes from San Francisco, just FYI. So yes, birthday buddy Chaim Weizmann became Israel's first president, but you might think that's odd because this whole time I've been talking about David Ben-Gurion as the first prime minister. It turns out there is a difference, and that gets into the chaotic but strangely rational world of Israeli politics. As the War of Independence began winding down in late 1948 and early 1949, Israel turned to an essential feature of its democracy, something that it does with greater frequency including twice in 2019 than the United States national elections. These early months and years in Israel cemented the left wing led by Ben Gurion as the single dominant political force in Israel. Today's Israel watchers, especially in America like to lament the present government's right wing extremism. But for the first 30 years of its existence, Israel was utterly and completely a nation of the left. Today we are going to get into and explain all how Israeli politics works. I'm your host Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew I Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In early November of 1948, the entire country of Israel was put on lockdown from 5 p.m. until midnight. No one was allowed to leave their house. It wasn't because there was a war going on, even though there was, and it wasn't because of any other imminent danger. It was because the government needed to count everyone. If you've ever tried to get a bunch of Israelis to stand still for a second, you can understand why martial law was necessary to make this happen. A census hadn't been done in a while, and anyway, the place had changed a lot since the British last did a count. Israel had gained a lot of new territory, and in the process lost hundreds of thousands of Arab residents, and the British never really counted the Jews who came to Palestine in violation of the British blockade before the state was created, which had amounted to to some 100,000 people. So Israel needed a count, because some seven months after establishing the state, they were finally getting around to holding their first election. Now, in the meantime, a provisional state council of 37 people, plus Ben-Gurion, had been running things. These were the 38 people who had signed the Declaration of Independence. Their very first act had been to officially repeal the hated British White Paper of 1939, which had severely restricted Jewish immigration. Thus was Israel not only fully open for Jewish immigration now, but it retroactively legitimized the 100,000 Jews who had come in illegally through the Aliyah Bet operation that I had talked about back in Season 2. Now these 38 people weren't elected. They basically slid into their roles because they had already been doing those same jobs, more or less, at the Jewish Agency, which was the governing body for the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, before Israel was created. Essentially, it was the government of Israel before Israel. This provisional state council appointed Chaim Weizmann as its head, making him president of Israel. But to run the day-to-day operations of the state, 14 of those members were chosen to form a cabinet, with Ben-Gurion running that show. So you've got the provisional state council, which functioned as parliament, which was headed up by President Chaim Weizmann. And then within, and next to that, you had it was the executive branch, 14 members led by Prime Minister Ben-Gurion. The reason why I'm telling you all this is because this is how the Israeli government came to be organized, and it's a structure that is still used today. Although this particular arrangement only lasted until early 1949, Israel's first national election in February of that year more or less codified this arrangement with Chaim Weitzman officially elected as president and Ben-Gurion officially elected as prime minister. But here's the catch, which is kind of hard for us dumb Americans to understand about different political systems. In Israel, you don't vote for a president or prime minister. You vote for a party. And in Israel back then and now, there were lots and lots of parties. Now at this point, you've got two options. You can turn off this podcast because politics is boring and go listen to some raunchy true crime murder mystery that everyone seems to get into these days, fine. Or you could be like, whoa, this episode is totally going to explain what and why Israeli politics has been so much in the news in 2019, and therefore this is so relevant to my understanding of how the world works. So it's your choice. No judgment. I'll give you a minute to decide. Oh good, you stayed, terrific. Let's get into it. So here in the United States, despite all of our whining, we have a very stable political system. We only have two parties, so we know that the outcome of every single national election is going to be either Democrat or Republican. And at the same time, our elections are on a very regular schedule. Every two years for the House, every six years for the Senate, every four years for the president. It doesn't matter how popular the president is or isn't, or even if he dies or leaves in the middle, His vice president steps in to run things until that election comes around again we also have a very stable process for forming the executive branch of our government a president is elected and then gets to pick his so far only his cabinet officers sure occasionally the senate rejects the president's choice here or there but when that happens the pres just picks the next person on their list there's no real lasting consequence so overall a very stable predictable reliable system That's not the case in Israel, or if you've been following Brexit in Britain, or any other similar parliamentary systems. In Israel, politics is chaotic and unstable, and that's primarily for two reasons. One is that Israel has a lot of political parties, and the other is the process for forming the government after an election. So first, political parties. As I mentioned, in Israel, you don't vote directly for the prime minister, you vote for his or her party. Each party put forth a slate of candidates and ranks them from one on down the line. Number one is who they would pick to be prime minister if they win. Depending on how many seats they win in the parliament, which is called the Knesset, that's how many people from their slate they get to put in power. So if I have a political party and I have a slate of 50 people, but I only win 10 seats in the Knesset, then my top 10 people get to sit in parliament. Everyone else is out. In early 1949, Israel established its parliament, the Knesset, which had, and still has, 120 seats. 120 seats for 120 representatives of the Israeli public. Why 120? Because that's how many seats the Great Assembly had. The Great Assembly was supposedly a gathering of 120 wise men that acted as a kind of legislative and legal system from the 6th century BCE to around the 3rd century BCE, I say supposedly because we're not entirely sure it actually existed, but whatever, let's keep our focus here. So how do you, a political party, get a seat in the Knesset? Well, you have to meet a certain threshold of the vote, which today in Israel is 3.25%. So if 3.25% of Israel's voters vote for your party, you are guaranteed seats in parliament in proportion to the total amount of the vote you got. In other words, those parties with the highest percentage of the popular vote get assigned the most number of seats. And look, I'm just reporting the math here. I'm not pretending to be able to actually add this stuff together. Now, in the early years of Israel, that percentage threshold was lower at only 1%, but that's not super important for our purposes. Here's where things get interesting. In order to govern, That is, in order to pass laws, your party has to have a majority of the Knesset with you. So 61 seats out of 120. A simple majority. But here's the problem. That has never once, not even one single time, ever happened in Israeli history. So if you don't have the majority, and you never have, now what are we supposed to do? Okay, so part of the chaos of Israeli politics is all of these different parties vying for seats in the Knesset. Instead of just Democrats and Republicans, you have dozens of parties with Hebrew names that are really hard to keep track of. In Israel's first election in 1949, 21 different parties were in the running. In April of 2019, it was 44. So all these different parties mean that no one ever gets more than half the vote. And therefore, no one ever gets a majority in the Knesset. The closest anyone ever came was getting 56 out of 61 seats in 1969, but generally the most popular party can expect to snag 30 or 40 seats. But wait, that means you don't have a majority, so how can you govern? And that's a great question, I'm glad you asked. To get to 61 seats, I need to team up with one or more other parties in order to get their representatives to vote with me in the Knesset. This is called a coalition government. Several parties band together to form the majority of the Knesset, and whichever party had received the most votes in the election, that's whose number one guy, or gal, gets to be prime minister. So if I'm the leader of the most popular party, and therefore going to become prime minister, but I still need a bunch of other parties to join my coalition so we can have that majority, how do I do it? Well, I promise them things. I promise to vote in favor of whatever their major policy issues are, but more importantly, I also promise to take a few of their top people and give them cabinet positions. So let's say I need three other parties to join me. So maybe I'll make one of their top people the Minister of Defense, another the Minister of Foreign Affairs, another maybe Minister of Education, and then of course there are the Deputy Minister positions, and on and on. In other words, I put their people in positions of real power. Because it's that cabinet, that executive branch, if you will, of the Israeli government, that's where the day-to-day power of running the country lies. So what happens is, there's an election. Every party gets whatever percentage of the vote that they get, and that determines how many seats in the Knesset they get. Whoever got the most votes gets to have their top person become prime minister. What happens then is the president of Israel steps in. The presidency is mostly a ceremonial and diplomatic job, almost like a monarch, or like winning the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Oscars. It's a recognition of a job well done, even though we don't really want you in power, and you haven't made a movie in a while. But the president does play a crucial role in the elections process, and it's this. The president says, Okay, Jason. Your party got the most votes, and you will become prime minister, and that puts you in the best position to form a coalition government. You now have 45 days to come back to me with your majority in the Knesset. So go make your promises to the other parties, and appoint their people to the cabinet, and let me know when everyone is in agreement. Now if for some reason I can't form a majority in those 45 days, there are two options. One is that the president can appoint the next most popular guy to try to form a majority government instead of me, which may very well be my political rival. Alternatively, the Knesset could dissolve itself. It could say, forget it, we quit. Let's try again by having a completely new election and maybe that will shake things up. Now in 71 years of Israel's existence, this has only ever happened exactly one time in 2019, which is why Israel had not won but two national elections this past year, in April and September. It's because the current Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, couldn't form that majority coalition government back in April. But rather than give his rivals a chance to try, the Knesset dissolved itself, called for new elections, which took place this past September. But that would really be a whole separate podcast episode. Let's try to stick to the 40s here. So the results of all this is that Israeli politics is characterized by a plethora of parties, which are often highly politicized and narrowly focused on one or two single issues. After all, if you don't see your pet issue in the major parties, all you do is split off, form your own party around that issue, and hope that you become part of a coalition government. This makes for intense bargaining and sometimes fragile coalitions because the catch in the political system is that if I have a narrow coalition, it can easily fall apart. If I'm dependent on another party for a crucial couple of seats that I need to get to 61, and they're angry at me, they can drop out of my coalition, I suddenly lose my majority in the Knesset, I can't govern, and we have to call another national election, which I may or may not win. So sometimes these smaller parties have immense power because they bring the most popular party those crucial few votes necessary to have a majority. If they bolt, taking their Knesset members and their cabinet ministers with them, the government falls apart. Now the advantages of this system is that it's highly representative. Everyone can get their issue heard through a political party, and given the right mix of electioneering politics, may find themselves with considerable sway. It's also a recipe for broad compromise, since every political party needs allyship from the other parties, it can, again with the right mix, drive policy towards the center, or at least in the direction of broad public opinion. The downside is that it's highly chaotic, and the process can be hijacked by a small party, or a single person who finds themselves in the role of kingmaker, making or breaking a larger majority in the Knesset. It also invests the Prime Minister with considerable power, since he or she selects the cabinet, makes the deals with other parties, and can generally alter policies and make political moves to keep the majority. When Prime Ministers are strong, things generally run pretty well. But when they're weak, it can be a mess, like we've seen in 2019. So, I think that covers the basics. I know it went very quickly. I also went on a little bit longer than I intended. But let's go back now to 1948 and 1949 and Israel's first national election. The Declaration of Independence on May 14th, 1948 had promised that by October that year there would be a constitution and elected assembly, but the war kept pushing things off. But towards the end of the year, the government was finally getting organized for a national election. Side note, in 71 years now they never got around to writing a constitution, but that's a topic for another time. Anyway, in the beginning there was no question who was the dominant political force, David Ben-Gurion and his party a centrist, left-wing party called Mapai. Mapai had been founded by Ben-Gurion all the way back in 1930, and it was so dominant by the time Israel was created that Mapai held the Prime Minister's office all the way until 1977. Later on, it became the Labor Party, which is still active today. Out of 12 Prime Ministers in Israel's history, eight of them ran on the Mapai, or Labor Party ticket. Another two ran on a center-left platform that mimicked Mapai and labor. So yeah, Israel for most of its history and all of its early history was very much a centrist lefty state. The reason why the left was so dominant was partly because of Ben-Gurion's charismatic and dogmatic dominance of the political scene before Israel was declared, and also because of its success. Mapai, after all, was the political force credited with ushering in the new state winning the War of Independence, and now setting up the necessary government infrastructure. So no wonder it had so much public support. But the other reason it was so dominant was because so much of Israeli society fed into the party. Remember from season two that the mainstream Zionist movement was secular, lefty, socialist. Its institutions were largely secular, lefty, socialists. Many of its European immigrants to Palestine were secular, lefty, socialist. The Haganah, Jewish Palestine's largest militia that turned into the Israeli army, was left. The Histadrutz, the largest trade union to which most workers belonged, that was left. And Ben-Gurion ran them all. You could spend your entire life ensconced in the warm embrace of the left, and many did. You could be born in a kibbutz, that was left. Then you grew up and joined the army, and everyone knows that the strong, tan, communally-minded kibbutznik made the best officers and the most capable of the elite soldiers, young men like Yitzhak Rabin. So that meant that the Israeli military was generally led by officers on the left, which also meant that the left never got tagged with being soft on national security the way that Democrats do in the United States. On the contrary, the left was the side that defeated the Arabs and established the state. So then after the army, you went looking for a job, so you joined the Histadrut, the trade union, and there you stayed throughout your working life. While the left-wing party in power and its politicians created the modern welfare state. Crafting left-wing economic policies that just fed right back into this almost self-sustainable loop. No wonder it took 30 years the right-wing in Israel to take hold. Still. Remember what I said before, that no party ever gets a majority in elections. And despite Mapai's dominance, Ben-Gurion still had to form a coalition government in 1949. Mapai took nearly 36% of the vote that year, which got them 46 seats in the Knesset, so still a ways away from the 61 needed to have a majority. Ben-Gurion pulled together a coalition of four other parties, which included Orthodox Jews, Arabs, and Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, not included were parties even more to the left than the pie, including one that came in second place in the election. Mostly because they were Marxist and supported the Soviet Union, and Ben-Gurion didn't like that. Also not included was Ben-Gurion's arch-nemesis, Menachem Begin, who was the head of the main right-wing party, which was called Herut. It came in fourth in that first election, getting only 14 seats. Herut grew out of the Irgun, the right-wing militia also led by Begin, and which had played an impactful role in leading the resistance to British rule and helping to usher in the Jewish state. Herut itself was the political party that the Irgun tuned into when the state was established. Herut came out of revisionist Zionism, which I talked about a lot in Season 2. It was the right-wing splinter faction of Zionism that started with Vladimir Jabotinsky and was then led by Begin, The main difference between Herut and Mapai was over territory. Simply put, Herut believed that Israel should have more of it, particularly the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and shouldn't make peace with the Arabs until that territory had been absorbed into Israel. And this goes back to what I talked about last time in terms of Ben-Gurion's flexibility and pragmatism when it came to borders. Herut instead believed that Israel should have all the territory that made up the historic land of Israel. Ben-Gurion and Begin had hated each other for a long time, made worse by the almost civil war of the Altalena ship from a few episodes ago, for which the right never forgave Ben-Gurion. He refused to ever include Herut in his coalition governments, and Herut refused to participate anyway, viewing itself as the opposition to labor Zionism. Herut's detractors, especially Ben-Gurion, accused Begin and his party of being fascists, Nazis, and terrorists, all in an effort to delegitimize them. So, the left wins elections, runs the government, and excludes the right from government, and that was as true in the first election in 1949 as it was for the next 30 years. But remember what I said about the downside of this system. It's chaotic and can easily fall apart. Which is exactly what happened. Israel's very first government lasted barely more than a year and a half before new elections had to be called. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We still have a war to finish up. At the same time that Israel was organizing and holding its first democratic elections, the War of Independence was coming to an end in the form of armistice agreements with the various Arab countries involved. It was a tough war and came at a high cost for Israel. Many lessons were learned and the nation began to appreciate that in many ways its first year of existence set the stage for the next 70. One of the most tumultuous decades in Jewish history was coming to a close. Today's music is Effie Netzer and the Beit Rothschild singers doing some Israeli folk songs and the band Keveret. We'll get into all the stuff with the end of the war next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. L'hitra'ot. See you later.